Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And last week was CES 2021, which, for many reasons, was very different from CES events in years past. For one thing, this CES was fully virtual, so instead of dominating the Las Vegas Strip, the event switched over to a series of press conference streams from various companies. Reporters, who normally would be spending time wandering booths and securing on-location interviews and occasionally trampling me if I happened to get between them and free food, were instead covering press releases and video streams, though a few also had a chance to get some hands-on time with some of the technology when companies would ship stuff to them. But in one way, I suspect CES 2021 will be like many other CES events of years past, in that some of the things that were shown off there are never actually going to make it to the market. That can be a little frustrating for some people, including myself. I mean, it is the consumer electronics show, after all. Or at least it used to be. You actually are not supposed to call it that anymore. In fact, the official CES media kit includes the sentence, quote, Please do not use Consumer Electronics Show or International CES to refer to the event, end quote. I'm not actually sure which year marked the official point where CES no longer really stands for anything. I mean, you know, as an initialism. But the Consumer Technology Association that's the organization responsible for throwing the event, felt that Consumer Electronics Show is really too narrow a focus for what CES is today. I mean, a lot of the stuff you find at CES doesn't really fit the mold of consumer electronics. Some of it will never see the light of the day as a, as a consumer product. Some of it's meant as an enterprise product. Some of it doesn't really have a physical form. You might be talking about apps. And sometimes you're talking about stuff that is related to electronics, but itself is not an electronic. So I get why they wanted to get away from that specific name. So in this episode, I thought I might cover a few gadgets and technologies that got time on the showroom floor of CES events in the past, but they never made it to something that consumers could actually purchase. And I might mention a couple of examples from this past CES, I actually already alluded to this in a previous episode of Tech Stuff when I covered the news. I talked about Razer and Project Hazel and Project Brooklyn. So those will probably come up again. And I'll probably talk about a couple of things that haven't been shown off at CES, but had a, a similar path in that they were announced but never actually emerged. So let's jump on in. Oh, also, I recommend that you look up some of these on your own. Uh, especially if you can see the pictures of them, because a lot of them are really fun to look at. Now, sometimes we see a product that isn't bad. It's just ahead of its time. The implementation of the technology might be a little on the crude side, and the price tag might be a lot on the high side. And so an idea, while a good one, might not go very far. And that might be why the robot called Genus never really had a chance. Genus that's G-E-N-U-S, debuted at CES 1983. The robot looks a little bit like a pedestal on wheels, kind of similar to some of the robots that Samsung showed off at the CES 2021, like 
uh, like the, the bot handy robot. However, the genus robot is a little more angular. It's not quite so smooth and round as the other robots are. It's also quintessentially 80s in style, so I recommend you check it out. The promotional pamphlet for Genus said it is, quote, fully programmed for beginners, yet is programmable for advanced users, end quote. Now, clearly the Robotics International Corporation, which was the company behind Genus, saw how personal computers were beginning to take off in the consumer market, and they knew that they would need to remove some of the barriers of entry for the average person. That is the average wealthy person, because this robot, depending on the options you picked, could cost upwards of $12,000 in 1983. And when we adjust that for inflation, that's more than 30000 bucks today, a princely sum. I mean, you could buy a car for that. Anyway, Genus was to have a lot of cool features that we would later, much, much later, see in products like the Roomba. It was supposed to be able to learn your home and map out the environment and learn where obstacles were so it could avoid bumping into things and maneuver around. It could return to its charging station on its own when its batteries got, got really low. Uh, it could even be equipped with a vacuum. So gosh, I mean, it was a Roomba. I mean, not really. It wasn't like an official Roomba, but you get what I mean. The technology behind this was pretty impressive for the day. It included stuff like a computer system with at least 48 whole kilobytes of memory. Yowza. Uh, it had a CRT display, had an optional keyboard so you could program it if you wanted to. It had passive smoke detectors, motion detectors, and more. But Genus never got much further than its debut at CES, and Robotics International Corporation would dissolve sometime in 1987. While I think the product was far too ambitious for the time, it was certainly an indicator of where things would eventually end up, although it would take a couple of decades. And we're still seeing companies like the aforementioned Samsung introduce large robots at CES 2021, so that trend continues as well. We don't tend to see those large robots actually getting adopted into the consumer market, but we see a lot of that technology kind of trickled down into other implementations like Roomba. Speaking of Samsung and robots, we're still waiting on Bali, that's the spherical robot that the company showed off at CES 2020. For that matter, we're still waiting on Scoutabout. What's Scoutabout, you ask? Well, it's about always being prepared, if I remember correctly. Ha, <laughs> that was a joke. No, really, the Scoutabout was the name of a line of robots Samsung showed off at CES 1992. The Scoutabout robots looked like little domes on wheels. I read one review that said it looked like little motorcycle helmets that were scooting around. They could roam autonomously around your home, and the purpose of the Scoutabout was to monitor your home for the purposes of safety. It was to have ultrasonic sensors as well as a passive infrared system, and it would let the robot sense everything from sounds to the presence of smoke. And it also had a temperature sensor. Uh, if it were to detect a danger, like a fire or someone breaking a window to gain entry to a house, it could sound an alarm and phone home to a security service, which then could coordinate with authorities. Samsung said the plan was for the robots to hit the market by early spring of 1992, 
with a price of somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500. So again, this is 1992. That would be somewhere between $1,800 and $2,700 today. However, the Scout About never came out. Now, I'm not saying that last year's Bali robot will also never come out, nor am I saying that Samsung's bot Handy robot demonstrated this year's virtual CES will never come out. But I wouldn't hold my breath. All that being said, I think it's only fair I'd point out that at least in some cases, it's not so much about a specific product, but rather the advancement of the technologies that power that prototype or concept. So in other words, the bot Handy, which Samsung showed off picking up a bottle of wine and pouring a glass of wine for somebody, or another video where it showed the robot filling up a dishwasher, it's not really necessarily about the robot. It's showing off something that actually is pretty darn cool, and that's the fact that the AI guiding this robot gives the robot guidance on how hard or soft the robot's grip should be whenever it picks up something. Now, you know, we humans get a pretty intuitive grasp on that kind of stuff, to use a pun. But for robots, it's different. A robot doesn't innately know how tightly it needs to grip something, and so it might approach a cinder block, or a breeze block for you folks in the UK, and a delicate champagne glass with the same amount of gripping force, that would probably not work out so well. It would either be too weak a grip for the cinder block and so it wouldn't be able to pick it up, or it would crush the glass in its mighty robotic hand. Either way, not exactly the result you're looking for. Now, all that being said, the Scout About was being demonstrated as if it were actually about to go on the market, so that particular example doesn't really fit into the whole this is more about showing off a technology than making an actual product kind of thing. So maybe that was Samsung learning its lesson. Sometimes the stuff we see at CES is really just meant to grab our attention, period, and doesn't indicate a sincere desire to bring a product to market. I'm pretty sure that was the thinking that went into the 2020 robot marketed by Charmin, that is the toilet paper company, and it was called Rollbot, because that's genius, but not genus. Anyway, the company had a booth set up complete with a toilet where you could test out this robot, though you were encouraged to, you know, not actually use the toilet. The things you learn after experience. So you would sit on the throne and you would call out for precious TP, allegedly by using an app on your smartphone, and a little two-wheeled self-balancing robot with a faceplate that looked kind of like a, a semi-abstract bear face, you know, a very like, like children's drawing kind of bear face. The robot also had little ears on top of it that the toilet paper roll would sit between, and it would wheel out with that roll of toilet paper on balanced on top of its head, uh, you know, flat side down, obviously, otherwise it just roll all over the place. And there was no way to see how the robot, which had no arms, is just the wheels and a box and the toilet paper roll would be on top of the box. There was no way to see how the, the robot would get the roll of toilet paper balanced on its head in the first place. I'm pretty sure there was just some poor booth attendee behind the scenes whose job it was to place rolls of toilet paper on the self-balancing robot before it would wheel out of its alcove to the rescue. Again, this was never really meant to come across as a real product. It was more of a marketing gimmick. 
It is too bad, however, because as we saw in 2020, getting hold of toilet paper was sometimes a challenge, and it would be really useful to have a robot bear do battle for you in grocery stores to get TP. But that was not meant to be. Moving on, in 1985, two years after Genus rolled around at CES, Commodore, the computer company that had been a real contender in the early days of home computers, revealed a portable computer. And what's amazing is that this one did not weigh a ton. A lot of the early portable laptops were portable in name only. They typically had a, a handle like a briefcase, and it required a strong back to lug around places. But the Commodore LCD tipped the scales at a svelte 5 pounds, or about 2.3 kilograms. The Commodore LCD looked a bit like a truncated laptop, or maybe like a typewriter connected to a small flip-up LCD screen. That screen could display up to 16 lines of text, and it could run a subset of software that was programmed for Commodore computers, but the LCD was not fully compatible with the Commodore desktop line. It had a Rockwell 65C102 processor running at a blistering 1 MHz clock speed. It boasted 32 kilobytes of memory, but it was expandable up to 64 kilobytes. Now, while the company didn't announce a price for the planned product, analysts estimated that it would have likely retailed for around $600. And in 1985, uh, that would be, let's see, for today's money, about $1,140. This project became the victim of internal politics at Commodore, or so the story goes. So the way the story works is that the CEO of Commodore, Marshall Smith, was talking to John Roach, the CEO of Tandy, another company that was selling home computers. And during that conversation, Roach told Smith that LCDs were going nowhere fast, baby. Subsequently, Smith decided to cancel the Commodore LCD project, along with all other LCD-related projects at Commodore. And legend says that only five prototypes of the Commodore LCD were ever made but only two of them have ever been officially verified. Let's jump around in time a bit more and head up to 2011. I was actually at that CES. One of the ways that companies will try to stand out from the crowd is to tap celebrities to announce or endorse products. I was not the celebrity. Um, I'm not a celebrity at all. But these celebrities these real celebrities, will make an appearance at CES for what I believe could be described as here, let me check my notes, um, yeah, a truckload of money. At least I assume so. I mean, I have no idea how much Slash was paid to come on stage in 2008 to play the opening riff of Welcome to the Jungle for Bill Gates and then just disappear in smoke, but I bet he was paid way more than I made that entire year. Anyway... In 2011, a different celebrity showed off a product to all her little monsters. Yep, Lady Gaga was at CES in 2011. I'm actually really upset I didn't get to go to the event where she announced this. I really wanted to see it. I wasn't terribly familiar with Lady Gaga, but I knew Spectacle when I heard it. But uh, unfortunately, I was elsewhere. Anyway, she was partnering with Polaroid to allegedly design and then unveil the GL20 glasses, a pair of very boxy-looking sunglasses with a built-in camera and a digital display that was also built into the frames. 
and I guess that with these, Lady Gaga could become the paparazzi. Oh la ah ah ah. Poker face. There, I've exhausted my Lady Gaga knowledge. Anyway, while Lady Gaga could wear the glasses and look fashionably weird, I think most of us would just look weird wearing them. But it wouldn't matter, because a year later there were still no GL20 glasses on the market. Polaroid claimed to still be planning a rollout, but another year went by, and another, and by 2014, Lady Gaga had bid au revoir to Polaroid, and the two had parted ways. Still no glasses. Lady Gaga's involvement with the project definitely got a lot of attention, but in the end, there didn't seem to be much of a payoff. And depending upon the terms of that partnership, it may have been a big loss for Polaroid, which I think is a shame, because I still have a soft spot for Polaroid cameras. We've got more gadgets that never made it to primetime coming up, but first, let's take a quick break. And now, for the That Smells Funny category for CES gadgets that never went anywhere. And I'm being literal here, because I want to chat about the eye smell from the company Digisense. Yeah, this was a real thing. I think of this as sort of the internet generation version of Smellovision. This one made the news back in 2001, so this was way before I ever went to CES, and I'm sorry about that because I wish I could have seen it in action. The device looked like a little pod with a shark fin-like protrusion, and it had vents through which scents could pump. The idea is that you would load this thing up with some cartridges filled with scented oils, and the device would heat up specific oils before using a fan to blow the smell out of the vents. By heating different combinations of those oils, it could produce different scents, and it would connect via USB to a computer. Now, just imagine the possibilities. You're on your computer, you're checking out possible vacation destinations online, and you're looking at a beach in Hawaii, and then your nostrils detect the scent of an ocean breeze. Maybe there's even a hint of coconut there. Or maybe you're playing a video game, and you're rushing through a burning building, and you can actually smell something that resembles wood smoke. Or maybe you're looking at an ad for cookies, and you smell... I mean, cookies, you know? It definitely falls on the gimmicky side, but at the same time, you can kind of see how incorporating smells into other computer activities could really increase a sense of immersion. The team behind the eye smell included Joel Lloyd Bellinson and Dexter Smith, both of whom had backgrounds in business. They envisioned a database of smells, with an algorithm that would best match sense to whatever it was the computer was, you know, encountering. So that way you would have a relevant smell. You wouldn't just have oh, that smells like burned rubber while I'm looking at daisies. That would make no sense. Now, I'm sure they also envisioned a world in which people would need to purchase refills for those scented oil cartridges, kind of similar to how printer companies really count on you having to order lots of new printer toner cartridges. But unfortunately for the team, the idea received little more than ridicule, even for the name I smell. Now, keep in mind... They were launching this, or trying to, in 2001. That was two years before Apple had even launched the iPod. So they were actually anticipating the iTrend. 
The company failed to release anything to market due to a distinct lack of consumer interest, and it faded away, and it really stinks. How about another category? Now this one could be called the old bait-and-switch, or in this case, the belt-and-switch. And I'm talking about Belty, which was one of those weird gadgets that gets a lot of buzz because, you know, it's not another big-screen TV or fitness tracker. That's one of the reasons a lot of these gadgets get a lot of coverage. It's not just that they're weird, it's that they stand out because it's not yet another version of something that we see all the time. Belty appeared in 2015, and it was a smart belt. Yeah, like the thing that holds up your trousers. Belty was supposed to be able to make automatic adjustments all on its own, tightening or loosening as the occasion demands, such as when you go from sitting down to standing up, or vice versa. Small motors inside the buckle would activate and increase or decrease the tension on the belt. Accompanying the smart belt was, of course, an app. And together, belt and app would track activity and give you a running tab on your waistline, just in case you were worried that you were starting to feel a little too good about yourself. And it was going to market for around 400 bucks. This version of Belty, however, failed to materialize beyond the demo models at shows like CES. It was supposed to go to market later in 2015, and instead, the Belty that would ultimately come out was a very different device. You can buy a Belty today, but it is a ratchet-style belt, so you can make minor adjustments, but you have to do so manually. There's no motorized buckle doing it for you. The smart part of the belt, the current Belty, is that it has a built-in battery recharger, so you can charge your phone on your belt and plug your devices directly into the belt buckle, I guess, uh, to give them more juice. Now, my guess is that this recharging battery in the belt is itself a lithium-ion battery, and knowing how those can sometimes be a little dodgy, I'd be a bit hesitant to strap one right up against my pants. I mean, it's probably okay, right? I mean, phones don't usually spontaneously combust, unless it's the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 and, uh, yeah, I'm going to skip Belty. But hey, Jonathan, I hear you ask. Yes, that's right. I can hear you. How about you talk about a product that was demonstrably a bad idea, and that is why it never came to market? Okay, I guess I will. Let's talk about the Mattel Aristotle, because who boy, was that a bad idea and the reaction to it would ultimately lead Mattel to cancel launch plans for this device. Mattel unveiled the gadget at CES 2017, and if you really want an easy way to describe this thing, all you have to do is say it's Alexa, but, you know, for kids. Shout out to the Hudsucker proxy for that one. Anyway, it was a smart home assistant, similar to Amazon Echo or Google Home. Bundled with the smart speaker device was a camera, and the whole package was supposed to retail for $300. The back end of the system included stuff like image recognition algorithms that could recognize specific things within a child's room. Those specific things, I'm sure will surprise no one, could include other Mattel toys. I'm going to paint a picture for you, not that Mattel ever said this. But this is just something that I imagined when I was reading up on it. So think for a moment that you're a little kid 
and you're in your room and then suddenly the smart robot that lives in a speaker says to you, hey, little so-and-so, how about you go pick up that Hot Wheels car and play with it? Vroom, vroom, that sure is fun, isn't it? Man, you know what else would be fun? If you had the Super Ultra Deluxe Stunt Spectacular Hot Wheels set, then that car would go really fast and you would be the most super awesome cool kid in the universe. Hey, how about we ask Santa for that this year? Yeah, that's a great idea you had, so-and-so. All right, so I'm definitely taking some major poetic license here, but you get to where I'm going, right? The idea being... This could easily become a tool that Mattel could have used to try and convince kids to get more Mattel toys. Numerous critics also pointed out the other very glaring problems with privacy that a connected device complete with webcam would represent for parents. And the fact is, Mattel did plan for this smart device to allow you to do stuff like place orders for Things like diapers, for example, because Aristotle could switch from child mode, where it would play with kids, to adult mode, and then tap into Amazon's Alexa Assistant. Now, I found all of this particularly surprising. Not because a company would try to tap into that market, that, I think, was inevitable, but rather because Mattel had already been burned pretty badly with a Barbie doll called Hello Barbie from earlier on. This Wi-Fi-connected doll was vulnerable to being hijacked, according to a security researcher named Matt Jakubowski. It could turn into a surveillance tool and spy on kids, and that is beyond terrifying. And so, faced with some very tough questions, including some coming from politicians, Mattel decided to scuttle the plans for Aristotle later in 2017. All right, I've talked about failed products, marketing gimmicks, and stuff that falls somewhere in between, but how about something that was called a scam? I mean, that's what some people said the Phantom console was all about. And I've talked about the Phantom in other episodes recently when I talked about Google Stadia. In 2004, the company behind the Phantom, Infinium Labs, showed off the Phantom at CES at the Windows Embedded Devices stand. Only, it wasn't switched on or connected to anything. It was really, you know, a box. At this point, there was already speculation online that Infinium Labs wasn't totally on the up-and-up. There were message boards filled with threads by users who claimed to have visited the listed office address for the company, only to find unoccupied space, there were investigations into the people behind the company, but the fact that the company was part of CES and associated with Microsoft made people wonder if perhaps it was legit, despite those early misgivings. At CES 2005, Infinium Labs would appear at the NVIDIA booth. Visitors to the booth had a chance to actually play games on the console, but those games had already been installed on the device, which meant no one could see how long it would take to download a full game to the Phantom. That's what the Phantom was meant to be. It had no optical drive. You were to download over a broadband connection all of the games you wanted to play on it. It also meant that people would point out that this made the Phantom no different from any other kind of computer, because there are already computers that run the games that were running on the Phantom. So, as far as anyone knew, the Phantom so far consisted of a fabricated case that could be around an otherwise mundane collection of PC parts. 
The Phantom missed launch date after launch date, and eventually it was clear that it was never going to come out at all. Whether it was all a hoax from the beginning, or it was just a case of a product languishing in development, remains an open question. I'd like to think that the team working on the Phantom were sincere in their efforts. I have suspicions about some of the business leaders, but I, I also suspect that the engineers at Infinium Labs were really trying to make a good, robust system. Infinium Labs would eventually produce actual products, but they fell into categories like keyboards and stuff, not actual consoles. One thing I've seen at numerous CES shows are devices that claim to read your brainwaves and generate a response based on them. That response could be anything from an app encouraging you to relax if it senses that, you know, you're being really tense and anxious, or it could be a game where your concentration affects what's going on. Uh, I'm reminded of a game called Mindflex that I saw at CES one year. This one actually came out. So this is something that did make it to market. This was a toy from Mattel, or at least, you know, distributed by Mattel, that used a column of air to suspend a ping pong ball as if the ball were levitating. A fan inside the game's base would provide the column of air, and you would wear a headset, and by focusing, you could cause that column of air to raise or lower the ball. Essentially what you're doing is changing the RPM speed of the fan that's generating the column of air. Meanwhile, a rotating playing field would introduce various obstacles, and only by making the ball move to the correct height would you be able to get through all the obstacles. The headset relies on EEG readings of brainwaves, or at least that's the claim. Now there's some disagreement about whether or not it really works the way they claim it does, or if it just presents the illusion of control, but I don't see why it wouldn't be at least theoretically possible, assuming you had decent sensors, because EEGs, you know, picking up EEG signals through the skull, that's a little tricky. But anyway, let's get back to what I really wanted to cover, and that's the Atari MindLink, which in some ways sounds similar. Like the MindFlex, this was a device that had a wearable component to it. You would put on what looked like a plastic headband that had a wire attached to it that would lead to an Atari 2600 console. And you try to control a video game using not your thoughts, despite the name MindLink, you weren't, you know, focusing. Instead, you were using the muscles in your forehead. The band had infrared sensors that would pick up the movement of those muscles, so by tensing or relaxing your forehead, you could send commands as if you were holding some sort of controller. Uh, it wouldn't work with just any game. It's not like you could hook this up to an Atari 2600 and play any title. They had specific titles made for this device in particular. Uh, the inputs are pretty primitive, so they were more like the type of controls you would have with a paddle-based game, like Breakout or Pong or something like that. The MindLink was supposed to come out in 1984, but, you know, it didn't. Now, at the time, Atari was also dealing with the total collapse of the home video game market because the industry had suffered a catastrophic failure in 1983 due to many different factors, including a saturation of the market, and some supremely bad business decisions, along with a lot of just garbage systems and games. And no one was coming out of this sparkling clean. Everybody had made some dumb decisions leading up to this. And so the mind link was never actually meant to be. Besides, I hear a lot of users would actually get really tired 
after using it for just a couple of minutes because they were scrunching up their foreheads like crazy just to get through a game, which doesn't sound like much fun. Okay, we've got some more examples to chat about in a bit, but first, let's take another quick break. Of course, not every gadget that fails to make it to market debuts at CES. In fact, some companies prefer to announce their latest innovations well outside the CES trade show window because it can be pretty hard to get noticed in all the hoopla at CES. And there are a few examples of concepts and prototypes that we learned about elsewhere that likewise never became a product that you could actually buy. So I thought I would cover a couple of the more notable ones. We learned about these examples outside the CES show floor. And sometimes the stuff we see announced is coming out of a company that is going through a tumultuous time. And the reason that the gadget never makes it beyond the showroom floor is because of big changes inside the company in an effort for it to remain relevant. That's kind of what happened to the Commodore LCD, it's kind of what happened to the Atari MindLink, and it's also kind of what happened to the Palm Folio, which I thought was a genuinely neat idea back in the day. As the name tells you, the device came from Palm Incorporated. Palm was known for being a leader in personal digital assistance back in the day. And for those youngins among you, a personal digital assistant in those days was kind of like a primitive smartphone, only without the phone part. You would use one to manage your contacts, take notes, keep your calendar, that kind of thing. And typically, you would physically connect these early PDAs to a computer, usually using some sort of proprietary cable or cradle, and you would synchronize data from a computer program to your PDA. But by 2007, when Palm announced the Folio, Palm had progressed from the simple PDAs of the past and was now making smartphones like the Treo. Now, these smartphones catered more to working professionals than to the mainstream crowd. Kind of like BlackBerry, Palm was a brand used mostly by white-collar executive types, plus some nerdy tech journalist types that I know, though there was some adoption beyond that niche market. One such line of smartphones from Palm, as I mentioned, was the Treo line of devices, and the Folio was meant as a companion for handsets like the Treo. The Folio was a very small laptop, categorized as a sub-notebook. In fact, if it had just come out a couple of years later, we probably would have called it a netbook. The computer didn't have super hefty specs. It was meant to be a versatile, lightweight device that had a long battery life. It used Linux as its operating system. It had 256 megabytes of memory, a 416 megahertz processor, and an LCD display. It was meant to be paired with a smartphone. It had Wi-Fi, but functions like email would work in concert with the phone rather than going from the Folio to the Wi-Fi network directly. It was a bit of an odd duck in that regard. Palm marketed the device as an alternative to heavier laptop computers and pointed out that pairing it with a smartphone would give users internet access even if there were no Wi-Fi networks available in their area. The pitch was really toward business users who travel a lot, as the device's specs didn't fill many people with confidence that you could use it to do other stuff like, you know, watch videos or anything along those lines. But then that's not the purpose that Palm was pushing it for. 
The folio never made it to stores. Palm actually canceled it, choosing instead to focus on refreshing its smartphone technologies. Palm was in a bit of an existential crisis at the time, with analysts suspecting that the company would either go out of business or accept some other company's offer to buy it out. In 2008, Palm showed off the WebOS operating system, that's WebOS, and introduced the Palm Pre smartphone at that year's CES. That's the product that actually did make it to market. But the Pre failed to gain much traction in a market that was already being dominated by Apple and the iPhone. And it didn't help that Palm had signed an exclusive deal with Sprint as the mobile carrier that limited the amount of people that Palm could reach because it was only for Sprint customers. In 2010, Hewlett-Packard announced it was acquiring Palm for $1.2 billion in an all-cash deal. HP would later end all support for Palm and WebOS devices, and it seemed like Palm was well and truly dead. But in 2015, a company called TCL revealed it had acquired the Palm brand name, and so the name lives on, though you could make an argument that there's very little connective tissue to the old Palm company. TCL, by the way, was one of the companies at this past CES showing off concept smartphones with expanding OLED screens, kind of similar to the LG Rollable. While we're on the subject of innovative portable computing devices, let's talk about the Microsoft Courier. Like the Folio, this was a concept that we learned about outside of CES, with most reports about the prototype device appearing in late 2009. This predated Apple's launch of the iPad, which makes it even more impressive, really. The idea was for a dual-screen portable computer device, similar to a tablet, but really more of a booklet. The device could fold into a closed position like a book, with the two screens facing one another. The device included a touchscreen that users could interact with using either their finger or a stylus. The pitch for Courier was that this was meant to be a device to allow for content creation. It was meant for creatives who had less of an emphasis on traditional productivity applications, and that set it as distinct from Microsoft's mainstream strategy. It ran on a modified version of Windows, and ultimately, the fact that it didn't fall right in line with Microsoft's product strategy kind of doomed the Courier. Also, a different team inside Microsoft was working to develop a Windows variant for tablet computers, which would represent a forked development path, and that in general is a bad thing if you want a cohesive strategy. By 2010, Microsoft had killed the project. Now, I mentioned Razer and its Project Hazel, which is a smart mask with N95 certification that we, we don't really expect to see come to market. There's also Project Brooklyn, the smart gaming chair concept that has a rollable display that extends from the back of the chair over the head of the person who's sitting in the chair. Then it stretches the screen out right in front of them at head level. I don't think we're going to see either of those in the real world, at least not in those forms. But Razer has a history of doing this. Not that I think the company is trying to pull a fast one or anything. It's often using some pretty ambitious designs to help push the general industry forward or to propose alternatives to how things are traditionally done. The fact that these projects might not ever hit the consumer market is kind of a drag, 
But in the process of creating these projects, Razer is pushing designers and engineers to think beyond their normal parameters, and that can often lead to technologies we actually will see out in the wild, although they often do not resemble the audacious projects that spawned those technologies. Take Project Christine, for example. This was a really cool idea that Razer floated in 2014. It was a PC design with an incredibly modular approach. So imagine a stand. This is your base computer unit. And in the stand, you could plug various modules, like a module that has a CPU in it, or one that has a specific GPU, or maybe it's a power supply module, or a memory module, or it's storage. You can mix and match. You could create a customized PC to your liking, and you wouldn't have to worry about stuff that otherwise is a big part of building your own PC, like... Is this processor compatible with this motherboard? All that would be taken care of for you. And the modular design means it would be easy to swap out components. So let's say your graphics card is getting a little bit long in the tooth. You could unplug that module from your base tower and swap in a new GPU module, or maybe multiple GPUs. And each module would have its own cooling system. According to Razer, it was active liquid cooling, and it also had noise cancellation, so it would run quietly. What it did not have is a release date. And again, this isn't to really lay fault at Razer's feet. A project as ambitious as Christine would require buy-in from more than just consumers. Razer would have to partner with the various companies that were making GPUs and CPUs and memory cards and power supplies and all that other stuff. There would need to be a coordinated effort to build out modules that were compatible with the system. And, you know, that just didn't happen. There's a lot of inertia to overcome in the PC space to make something like Christine a reality. I think it was a, a really interesting idea, one that could be transformational if enough companies agreed to make components that would fit the modular standard. But I'm also not surprised that there wasn't a lot of buy-in on that front, because pretty much everyone wants to be the one to define the standard, rather than the one who has to conform to the standards that were made by somebody else. Another Razer project that wowed crowds, but did not transition to a consumer product, was Project Ariana, a projector. This one was really wild. So this projector had two 3D cameras that would actually be used to scan the room you had it in. So that way it would create the perfect projection. And then when it was time for you to, say, play a game, the projector would communicate with that game and effectively extend your viewing area beyond the borders of your display. So you're still playing your game on your computer, looking at your computer screen, but the projector extends that view beyond what you see on the screen. So you can kind of see, you know, beyond the edges of the frame. It was really an interesting notion. The projector would also create interesting lighting effects to coordinate with the game and enhance your experience. It really did sound super nifty, I'm sad this one never really made it beyond the conceptual stage because it sounds truly immersive. Uh, maybe it would also be a little on the unfair side. I mean, if you're able to extend your view beyond what most people can see, maybe then you could, if you're playing a competitive game, see players before they could possibly see you. I guess that might be a thing that could be an issue. But how about Project Valerie? This was a Razer Concept laptop that featured not one, not two, but three screens. 
The screens would sit in a stack, so you could use it as a single-screen laptop, or folding arms could extend a pair of extra displays, one to either side of the central screen. Razer called it a way to create surround view with a resolution of 11,520 by 2160. That's a crazy resolution. They also called it 12K because it would be a 4K screen, a 4K screen, and a 4K screen. You could get a real panoramic view of a game this way, or maybe you could use it so that you're playing a game on one screen, you're looking at OBS over at Twitch on the second screen, and then you're monitoring chat on your third screen, which would make this laptop the portable video game streamer rig of dreams and wonders. But Valerie also never came to market. There are some multi-screen laptops out there these days, but they tend to be in a very different form factor than what we saw with the Valerie concept. For example, the Asus ROG Zephyrus Duo 15, which has a main display and then just mounted uh, above where the keyboard is, there's a little hinged system that tilts up a bit where you have a touchscreen display. That touchscreen is very wide, but it's also very short. So it's not like a true, it's like a second screen that, that mirrors the size of your primary screen. It's a, a, an additional workspace, really, a touchscreen workspace. I don't know how useful it is. I don't know how well it works as an extension of your main screen, but it is interesting that we're seeing some actual consumer product versions of a laptop that has more than one screen. It might not be the enormous beast that Valerie was, but it's a step in that direction. And that's all I've got for today's episode. Clearly, there are countless other examples of products that were announced at one point but never, ever made it to the consumer market. Uh, there are probably a lot more failures out there than successes. In fact, I'm sure there's tons that we never heard of. And that's just the, the nature of things. If you're trying something new, it's not always going to work. But I do like the spirit of innovation. I like the creativity. I like the audacity of some of these projects that uh, never made it. I'm very curious what, what the world would be like if the eye smell had really taken off. I hate to think of what some of my favorite websites would smell like. I guess I don't have to worry about that. If you guys have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me and let me know what you would like me to talk about, whether it's a company, a trend in technology, a specific tech and how it works, or anything like that. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 